Welcome to The Inner Game. I'm Gwen Garcelon, your host. Thanks for listening. The Inner Game is about how we nurture and attend to our mind-body-spirit health and how that allows us to play a bigger game and make a bigger contribution in the area of purpose that calls to us. And these are conversations with people who are committed to making an evolutionary difference with their lives from a place of balance and love and service. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Will Tuttle, author of The World Peace Diet. Will is a former Zen monk whose work and research offers a way to contribute to world peace and a revolution in healing injustice, disease, and conflict with our food choices. He is the recipient of the prestigious Courage of Conscious Award, and his new book, Food for Freedom, shares pioneering insights into the cultural healing and evolution possible through the food we consume. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you very much, Gwen. I'm delighted to be with you. You know, I always like to start with a bit of spiritual background, and you have a pretty fascinating story. Can you tell us a little bit about your early spiritual path and how that unfolded? Sure. Right. Yeah. Well, I was born and raised in Concord, Massachusetts back in the 1950s, and it was pretty neat because that was not only the birthplace of the American Revolution in 1775, uh, the Patriots Day, we would reenact that, and my father would get dressed up in his Minuteman outfit with a lot, a lot of other guys, and they'd get their guns off the wall, and we would reenact the revolutionary battle of the Old North Bridge or that. You know, so there was this idea, I think, it conquered, at least for um, in, uh, in our family. My father owned a whole chain of newspapers. So there was this whole feeling of being connected to the history and the politics and so forth of the region just outside Boston. And the idea that we can make a change in our uh, not only our inner world, but in our outer world. And a few hundred, about 100 years later, there was the Transcendentalist Revolution, which was uh, pioneered by uh, Thoreau and Emerson and Alcott, and they were really the first ones in North America to bring the teachings from Asia into North American soil in a, a way that to integrate them with the uh, Western ideas. And so they brought the idea, for example, from the Buddhist tradition of God as infinite mind, the Taoist tradition, God as infinite principle, uh, the, the ideas from, from India of God as equally female as male and so forth. And they had quite an uh, impact uh, on the society. When I went away to college in Maine back in the 1970s, I started to cover the, uh, these teachings of the transcendentalists, and that led me to the wonderful poetry of Walt Whitman and also the starting to uh, study Zen and the Bhagavad Gita and all these Taoist teachings and so forth back then and practicing yoga. And so uh, to make a, a long story quite short, we just, my brother, my younger brother, Ed, and uh, I, when I talked to him about these ideas, which really centered around the idea that it's possible for human beings to attain a higher level of consciousness and that if we don't attain a higher level of consciousness, we're kind of stuck in self, just a, a, a narrow self-centered way of living but that certain great sages and saints like Jesus and the Buddha and other great uh, teachers and founders of religions 
uh, we're in a higher state of consciousness that people have called cosmic consciousness, for example. And basically that it's the goal of humanity to attain this higher state of consciousness, which is where we basically lose the self-centered, narrow perspective. We lose the fear of death and so forth. And we, we begin to look through eyes of compassion and kindness and, and uh, working for the best for everyone, not just for ourselves or the, or the tribe that we're in, but the whole of humanity and really the whole uh, web of life. And so I got really excited about this, and I remember deciding that uh, this would be the focus of my life and telling my brother Ed, and delighted that he felt the same way. <laughs> so uh, we left home. We, and we walked down uh, the driveway of our parents' home. I got my parents' blessing, and uh, we had some fresh-baked cookies from my mother and <laughs> some little backpacks, and we thought we would walk to California the, the way the sadhus in India did with no money. Wow. Just walking and meditating, and we had quite an adventure, I have to say. We walked, and all kinds of things happened. It would be quite, I should write that book someday. But uh, eventually, we got as far as Buffalo, New York, after about a month or so of walking and meditating, and uh, all kinds of minor miracles happening along the way. And when we got there, we just, it was this time of year, it was October and it was getting really cold. Mm. So we just decided to head south. And we actually walked all the way down through upstate New York, crossing to Pennsylvania, and then down through West Virginia into the Bible Belt, which I discovered what, discovered what that meant, which was uh, very interesting. They tried to save us every night in mm. that there was a you know, a really that type of situation. But there was a beautiful quality of, uh, of urgency, too. A lot of, uh, you know, suffering, really, and poverty. We stayed in little shacks that didn't even have wooden floors sometimes with the people in eastern Kentucky and Appalachia. But we just walked about 15 or 20 miles a day meditating. Somehow food appeared. We would help people with whatever they needed, and then they would give us something to eat usually, and we'd walk on the next day. And uh, we ended up going down into Tennessee, and we stayed for about a month at the farm. It was called The Farm. It was the largest hippie commune in the world at that time. Uh, and they were south of Nashville, and there was about 900 people living there, mostly from California. So it was very poetic. We thought, well, they, they met us in the middle here in, <laughs> in, in Tennessee. <laughs> right. And they were all, they were all vegetarians. They were, studied, they were following the path primarily of Suzuki Roshi of the San Francisco Zen Center, and they didn't eat, and they were actually vegans. I mean, no one knew that word back in 1975, so you couldn't use it, but they said, we're vegetarians, but they didn't eat any meat, dairy, or eggs, or even honey, uh, out of basically compassion for animals, and the idea that was just starting to get known then uh, that we could feed everyone on this earth much more easily, very, I mean, completely easily, if we did not feed most of the food that we're growing to animals instead of feeding it, uh, and, you know, in, instead just feed it to people directly. So they were, uh, eat, you know, practicing this vegan way of living, which they call vegetarianism, mainly for compassion for hungry people, but also for the animals. They told me a little bit about that. So that was it for me. I never ate meat in my life again uh, after that. I found out years later when I met my now my wife Madeline, we've been married now for over thirty years, uh, that she the same month and year decided to go vegan in Switzerland or vegetarian actually. Wow. And, isn't that uh, wild. and then so so that was kinda neat, yeah. And then a few and then after then we walked down to uh, Alabama 
and we discovered and our big walk and we ended up living in this Korean Zen center and really working hard on our practice meditating from like three in the morning till nine o'clock at night just meditating and um, eventually got out to San Francisco a few years later and was living in several different like a Tibetan Buddhist center and studied pretty intensely there and then back with the Koreans in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area and then I decided to shave my head and become a Zen Buddhist monk in the early, early 1980s and went over to Korea and lived in, in a monastery in South Korea. And that was actually the second time in my life where I found myself in a completely vegan community. The difference was that this community had been practicing this for almost 800 years, probably about 750 years. There was no meat or dairy or eggs or wool or silk or leather, anything that would harm animals. You wouldn't kill insects even. So the whole idea was to practice ahimsa, which is the old Sanskrit word that means nonviolence. If we're really serious about deepening our uh, spiritual understanding and maturity and contributing to a more uh, healthy and compassionate world with more justice and so forth, then we're called to treat those who are with as much kindness and respect as we can. Mm. And that really helps us to go more deeply into meditation as well, because if I'm harming others uh, for my own benefit, then the mind tends to be anxious and busy, and we see ourselves as basically separate from the world around us. And that sense of separateness breeds a sense of comfort to disease and things. So the idea to understand the essential unity of consciousness and the unity of life and that what we are is the same as what every other being is which is an expression of one life and as such we're all related and so the best way for us to be happy is to do the best we can to help others be happy and the best way for us to be loved to feel loved is to be loving and the best way for us to be free is to liberate others and so it's kind of a complete opposite teaching of what I had been raised in, and which is more or less the idea that you got to look out for yourself and get what you can and compete with others. Uh, but it, it gradually just sunk in more and more deeply. And uh, so I eventually came back to the States. I decided not to be a monk for the rest of my life and ended up getting a Ph.D. at Berkeley in education and teaching college in the San Francisco Bay Area for quite a few years. And then I left that and moved into a Volkswagen bus and lived and traveled, putting on workshops on developing spiritual intuition and concerts. I played the piano and had played my whole life. And so I found that music and, uh, and meditation really worked together very well to help mm. people deepen their access to their inner wisdom and to healing also. And I went over to Europe and I was part of a, a movement to help through uh, citizen diplomacy to create peace with the Soviet Union and did a lot of concerts over there and build bridges of understanding. I was in the Ukraine and playing over there and Armenia and Russia, what is today Russia. And, and then I went to Europe and I met this uh, Madeline, who is now my wife, and she's an artist. And she fell in love with the music, actually, and was just wondering who made who. She bought a, a cassette of music. Back then it was cassettes. And then she uh, volunteered to come over and create the art for my first CD, 
which I had sent out a mailing saying, I need an artist for my first CD I'm going to do here. And so she came over and uh, moved into my Volkswagen bus <laughs> and uh, we hit it off and uh, we got married and we've been together now for 30 years. And I think, uh, you know, the, the whole thing, it just continues. The idea is to deepen our meditation practice through living a life of kindness and caring for others, especially those who are vulnerable at our hands. And that led eventually to me writing this book uh, that you mentioned, The World Peace Diet, which became a number one Amazon bestseller in 2010 worldwide and really was translated uh, in, in so many languages. So we were invited all over the world to, to go and speak. And so it's been quite a wonderful adventure of meeting people everywhere and sharing these basic uh, ancient truths. Really, it's, just, it's nothing new. It's ancient wisdom teaching. Uh, based really on the golden rule, don't do to others what you would not want to have done to yourself. And that's really what it boils down to. And if we really live that, then we begin, I think, to be part of the solution to the problem. Let me just say just quickly, Will, for those just joining, um, this is Gwen Garcelon, and you're listening to The Inner Game on KDNK. And I'm talking with Dr. Will Tuttle, author of The World Peace Diet. And I wondered, you know, I wanted to ask you, uh, I mean, in 1971, Francis Moore LePay's book, Diet for a Small Planet, was kind of like that watershed book for understanding the connection between our diets and how we care for the planet, what we eat as an expression of our environmental understanding and commitment. And it seems like your book, The World Peace Diet, takes that connection between food and environmental concern to this whole new evolutionary level that you're talking about. Were you influenced by Diet for a Small Planet at all? Did yeah. Did that play in that's anywhere? A great, right. Yeah, that's a great question. Absolutely. Yeah, that was actually the book that was going around back in the early 1970s. It was one of the main reasons that the people at the farm stopped eating meat. Interesting. That book. And, uh, and then when they said that... You know, I, I was per peripherally aware of it through my, I guess, through college and things. But uh, I just thought, you know, that's true. I, I mean, I, I can just do it. It was, it was just great having that example. 900 people all eating. You know, back, it was kind of hippie food. It was, you know, these big, <laughs> you know, rice and beans yep. and vegetables, you know, gigantic pots and everybody would eat it. But it really uh, made a difference. I could see that you could do this. You know, I had I went through the usual learning curve and unlearning curve of transitioning. Well, where am I going to get my protein and how do I do this and what do I do that and make substitutions and figure it out. And I was a vegetarian for five years. And then in 1980, I said, all right, now I can give up dairy and eggs. So I became a vegan in 1980, which is actually 43 years ago. And I have to say, it's been a fabulous thing. I've been, I didn't do it for my own health. I really did it mainly for animals and for people, but uh, I haven't been to actually been to a doctor or been to a drugstore for anything uh, since the early 1970s, yep. over like 50 years. I can attest so to that really too. Yeah, yeah. I've been oh, a vegetarian yeah, for years and years and years, and and uh -huh. very rarely yeah. get sick or need a doctor for anything. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's been really great on that level. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just thinking, you know, and we've talked about this, how here in Western Colorado, we have this beloved ranching tradition. Our ranchers are a, a lot of who are our land stewards. And, and you've acknowledged that, you know, there's a huge difference between 
small family ranches that may use regenerative practices to keep the soil and the water healthy and they care about their animals and big difference between that and the destructive huge feedlots that produce most of the animal products that are consumed globally. I just thought maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Right. Well, that's true. You know, there's uh, a tremendous uh, devastating impact of animal agriculture on the environment, which I talk about in the World Peace Diet. And I think, uh, of course, the underlying idea is not to blame anyone. We're, we're really products of uh, 10,000 years of animal agriculture as being introduced way back you know, 10,000 years ago in what is today Iraq, where for the very first time, people started to own animals as property for food. That's called herding. So, so that's a, to me, and I write about this in the little piece, that that was a huge revolution. And it was a very slow, gradual revolution, but it was the biggest one we've ever had in human society. And it basically transformed our relationship from nature with nature and animals to one of ownership and domination and exploitation. And we're the strong and they're the weak and gave rise to a science based on predicting and controlling, dominating nature, and especially the feminine dimension uh, of consciousness of animals and of ourselves, and uh, led to a patriarchal sort of dominating way of living, uh, and uh, really founded on the ritual of eating animal-based foods. So the research that I did in the World Peace Diet, you know, a lot of it was uh, external in the sense of uh, reading and uh, interviewing and understanding things in the world, what was going on. But a lot of it was also internal in the sense of spending thousands of hours in meditation and just making interconnections between my own upbringing, eating lots of meat, dairy, and eggs, and so forth. And as a, as a kid, going to a summer camp in Vermont where I killed my own chickens and we killed our own cows, we did it you know, ourselves, all organic. I participated in it, so I understand these are good people. They're nice, loving people, uh, but but I wouldn't want to be a chicken <laughs> or or a cow. I mean, in the sense that you know I, they're just raised to be killed. So the the problem, of course, is that as time has gone on, uh, our science has developed, and that has led to increasing violence towards animals in the sense of more hyper confinement. Uh, and genetic uh, manipulation, feeding schedules. And so these animals are really horrifically abused on the large-scale operations. Uh, but, I, of course, you know, I have to be honest. I mean, on all animal agriculture operations, the animals are born to be killed. That's really the purpose behind the whole thing. And so I see it basically as a holdover, uh, an obsolete hold, holdover from an earlier time where for some reason, anthropologists don't know why, but 10,000 years ago, people need, decided they needed to own animals as property, wild sheep and then wild goats, and 2,000 years later, wild cows. And that led to uh, a whole series of attitudes of disconnecting ourselves basically from nature, from the sense of being in a benevolent uh, world and being part of that to sort of managing it and being uh, above it. And I think the, these wounds are deeply enmeshed in our in our psyches and in our in our culture in, in general, and so to me that's really I talk about this in, especially in my new book that the the whole whatever we want to call animal liberation or you could call it 
perhaps veganism. But the whole idea is it's a two-step process. One is to just understand and bring our lives as much as we can into alignment with that understanding. So just not purchase meat, dairy products, and eggs if possible, uh, or wool, silk, leather, and so forth. So sort of not demand that animals be born into captivity, that females be impregnated against their will and have their babies stolen and killed. And you know, that, that has to happen on any animal agriculture operation. But the second step, which is even more important, I think, is to be able to understand the bigger picture of our society so that we're not angry and judgmental and blaming and so forth. Just understand that all of us have been wounded, you know, and when someone's wounded, you don't yell at them and kick at them, kick them. <laughs> you know, you try to be loving and, and understanding and, and, uh, and just do the best we can to help everyone uh, transition to a healthier, more loving way of actually interacting with animals and nature. And uh, I think, uh, you know, it can happen. I mean, there's, um, there's the, the rancher advocacy program, which uh, is being uh, carried out in Texas, but it's spreading where people who are ranchers uh, are being supported in transitioning to other types of agriculture that does not require them to kill and dominate and exploit animals. And because the basic idea really is that there are no nutrients in animal food based foods that did not get there from plants. All the proteins, the amino acids that make up the proteins, essential fatty acids, uh, all the vitamins and minerals and uh, every nutrient that's in animal based foods, you can get directly from plants. So we don't need to have the inner, the middle animal and all this violence and suffering that is inevitable in systems that it's just inevitable so uh, so that's the idea but again it's like uh, I remember growing up and hearing about my great uncle his name was Putnam and uh, he his business was making horseshoe nails back in the day when there were before cars and when cars came along and well he became obsolete and he had to get another way of making a living which he did and that happens all the time I mean you know we have to transition and find new ways of as our culture evolves. So I think the whole idea is that we hope that we do evolve to a, a way, a place where we don't have people who are working, say, to make landmines or to make uh, torturing devices or to make bombs to kill people. And we hope that people can make a living not uh, abusing animals also. I mean, that's a, a future, a positive future really requires us to think in these terms, I think, and to think for the best for everyone, not just for ourselves, but for all living beings and how we can actually be a force for healing on this planet rather than a force for uh, making others suffer at our hands when it's unnecessary. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I always like to ask yeah. my guests, um, what is a growth edge for you, something you're working on these days, and how is it helping you to make a bigger difference in your relationships and your work in the world? Really Great question, you. Gwen. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I think the growth edge for me is my practice of meditation and the inquiry into what am I actually, I've, you know, like all of us, I've had uh, insights, but to understand more fully and directly that what I am was never born and will never die, that, that the being that is functioning through uh, the physical vehicle 
uh, is eternal and is undamageable, essentially, by whatever happens in the outer world. And so even though now we're going through, I think, a very challenging time in our history uh, with more and more uh, uh, domination of human beings by uh, a globalist elite and so forth and more war and so forth, that it's really our spiritual awareness as individuals that is the greatest gift we can bring to the world. And the more we awaken to the truth that we are and that we're not separate from each other or from nature or the infinite source of all life, the more we are able to live without any fear. fear. And that's really the key, I think, because fear really contracts us and helps us to be enslaved. So that's really it, I think, mm. to help be a, a vehicle for this message and to no longer treat other living beings as livestock, because basic teaching is whatever we sow, we also reap. And if we're going to insist on treating other beings as livestock and dominating and exploiting them, it boomerangs right back on us, as we know, and the ancient wisdom teachings tell us, uh, and it happens to us, and we end up getting enslaved ourselves. So if we want to be free, we have to free others. That's the main thing I'm discovering. And how can people get in touch with your work, Will? The easiest way is probably through our website, worldpeacediet.com, or just my name, willtuttle.com. They both go to the same place, and we have our uh, all our events upcoming, and my wife, Madeline, has lots of cooking uh, videos and food preparation videos and music we have and uh, essays I've been writing and uh, all, all kinds of things. So, mm, beautiful. Uh, that's the best place, yeah. Well, thank you so much for offering everything that you have. And thank you all for listening today. If you have a question for Will or me, you can join the Facebook page at The Inner Game. We'd love to hear your feedback. And you can find out where to listen to past shows there as well. And Can I say one more thing real quick? Yeah, sure. Um, just, uh, we're going to be in Carbondale on Wednesday, November 8th at the 3rd Street Center, 6.30 o'clock. I'm giving a talk called yes. Healing Our World, A Deeper Look at Food. So I hope that we see people there. And that's November 8th at what? 6.30 p.m. at the 3rd Street Center. Thanks yeah. so much, everyone. Until next time, live with love. Swift rocks are ancient, mountains are high, oceans gray, winds are restless, trees are patient. You, my child, are away. are crashing, rivers churning, planets twirling.